0: Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of the David Cassidy Connections podcast. I'm Louise Poynton and I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Nina Mishkoff, who was at the cutting edge of the pop scene in the UK in the 1970s, interviewing the biggest stars of the day. She was the first woman editor of the popular teenage magazine Jackie, where she played a key role in watching sales reach one million copies a week. Later, she went on to become the Queen of Pop in Fleet Street, writing for leading national daily newspapers, as well as being a radio presenter, panellist and judge on television programmes. She has played tennis with Elton John, danced with Yoko Ono until dawn in New York, reduced Princess Diana to fits of laughter and parted with Freddie Mercury. In our conversation, Nina recalls some of these encounters but also shares memories of meeting David and describes his reaction when, many years later, she played him a recording he made for a Jackie magazine FlexiDisc giveaway. Later, we will hear from Ollie Spear, whose late father John wrote articles for Jackie for more than 20 years. He tells us his father's remarkable story. But first, Jackie readers explain why the magazine for them as 1970s teenagers was so important. Oh gosh, shaki magazine, I just adored it. It meant the world to me. It was this thing of pure delight. It had the most gorgeous artwork, especially on the fashion pages. The stories were so beautifully drawn. They would range from the most deeply romantic to comedies that made you laugh out loud. The models had clean, shiny hair, a touch of makeup. There was this theme of being confident in yourself, just being yourself and having confidence. And I think for me at the time, I found that inspiring. I've actually still got, even now, several copies of Jackie magazine, which I do occasionally flick through. as my not-so-guilty pleasure, um, and, and it's still a joy to
1: me even to this day.
2: The magazine was just for having your best friend, really, but was there all the time.
1: The David Cassidy connections with Louise Poynton cherish the legacy.
0: Jackie kind of opened our eyes to, oh, this is what you do when you're a teenager, you know, a
2: technicolor world, a technicolor world in what had been black and white or grey otherwise.
0: Yes, completely. Yeah. You know yeah, yeah. how to style your hair, how to wear makeup.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. What's
0: your first date going to be like? It was just pure it's... fantasies.
2: Yeah. yeah, it was, it, it
0: was lovely. And then you would play those fantasies out with your favorite pop stars.
2: Yes. And
0: that made it such a safe place to be.
2: Yes. Well, the thing was that because it was published by DC Thompson's, which was a very old traditional Scottish publishing company and a family firm, there was a very much of a family feeling and they're very Presbyterian in their, in their outlook. So that meant there was a lot of care taken and a lot of responsibility taken towards what is a very, very vulnerable and impressionable audience. You know, a 12, 13 year old girl, 12, 13 year old girls are very impressionable. And you can, you know, most products are launched, most magazines are launched to, to make the most of it, to, to sell as many copies as possible, to make money out of, of their audience. And young Jackie readers, you could, you could, have, you could have sold them anything. Um, you know that because that because they were growing, they were, um, they, you know, their their minds were open to new experiences. They were they were growing up. They were I very impressionable. So it was very good that DC Thompson, as, as a company, had a sort of parental ethos, if you like, towards Jackie readers, and so that's why. I think Jackie kind of flourished way beyond all the competitors that were launched, which were really launched to make a quick buck and maybe would turn around after about 18 months and then they try a new trend and new trend. Whereas, whereas Jackie was very consistent in its outlook and, uh, on a weekly basis and, and how how to treat the needs, to give them what they want to give them, not to, to educate them, but to inform But in a really entertaining manner, give them pop stars and beauty and fashion and readers problems and all of that. But it was a very, very, um, as you say, a safe environment. And I'm glad that it was.
0: It was. One of my my best friends, she came from a very difficult family background and Jackie was her salvation.
2: Oh, that's good. That's that's good to know. There's no question. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm glad. so glad to hear it. I mean, we used to get you know, hundreds of letters a week to the problem page, to the Kathy and Claire page. Of course, there was no actual Kathy and Claire, you know, uh, I'd hate to, to break it, to, to break it, shatter anyone's dreams after all these years. But, you know, obviously there were people that, you know, there, there, there was somebody in charge of it and that, that kind of ch- changed, as uh, you know, the staff turnover. But the attitude was always the same. And, and it seemed to me that if a little girl managed to get a piece of paper and a pen and write down her problems and express herself, get an envelope and address it and a stamp and have the courage to post it then she deserved an answer a personal answer and even though we had hundreds every week i made sure that everybody as far as i could that everybody got a personal response when you think back in those days there was there was no way you couldn't turn to the internet you couldn't turn to your friends maybe your best friend was your problem you couldn't talk to your parents like sadly your your friends um situation you you, Mm -hmm. you couldn't tell your parents the school might be the problem. So you, I mean, I think one of the things about being a t- teenager is that you feel alone, you know? Um, you think you're the only person that's ever experienced these problems. You you, you, you feel completely isolated if you are, are having problems. Because there were so many letters, there was a vast volume. It meant that it took a long time to, to answer them all personally. I instituted a series of leaflets. I think there were over 30, which covered... Almost every problem you could think of. I mean, we didn't actually, I think, go into things like sexual abuse because that wasn't really a topic or mentioned, you know. Um, and, I, and I wish we had, in a way. So everybody would get a letter saying, Dear, you know, thank you for your letter. I'm sorry to hear that, you know, you, you're having problems um, with your spots. I think you'll find that blah, 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 blah. And I mean, we're, in, we're enclosing a leaflet that will help you. It'll really do But then there'll be other things, you know. I'm sorry to hear you're having you know, problems with your best friend and that, that she's taken the boy that you love. And this is a really sad experience for you. So she, she'd feel personal. And there'd be a leaflet, a general relationship leaflet that would specifically answer her question. So that meant that we could have a really good turnaround and make sure everybody got an answer because people will be obviously looking at the magazine when you're only printing what, eight, maybe eight letters a week. You know, if you've got hundreds of requests, well, you're going to be sitting there forever. So that's what, that's what we did there. You became
0: counsellors for, for so many.
2: I guess we did, and and yeah. in and in the magazine we ad- we addressed that as well. Um, you know, we, we'd sort of have, apart from the problem page, we'd have articles like, for instance, who influences you? Think about it. Is it your is it your parents? It'll be your teachers. Is it your best friend? Is it um, adverts on the telly? Is it what you read in other mag in the magazine? Is it you know just just, just get people thinking you know just an, on a more fun side what we would do in those quizzes you know, supposed to tell your personality those quizzes you know a b c or d and, and if you had them you know you could always say oh i'm obviously a b and i'll just keep ticking those answers or, or, the, or the right one to tick as a c we we had a bit more psychological depth to those so that you could you know it, it meant more than just a kind of box ticking exercise I, at least at least that's what i hope my mother was a was a school teacher and she always said to me at least irritate me immensely or you're a Scottish as she was or you're a good teacher whisted and it used to drive me bonkers but in a way looking back she wasn't wrong. Yeah that's she wasn't right, wrong. and I say that through gritted teeth. <laughs> Mums <laughs> are always right.
0: <laughs> how many of the features that were in Jackie in the seventies when when you were editor, how many of those did you instigate? Did you see a change in the way that young young girls were developing and changing and thought, yes, I need to include these sort of features for them. This meets the
2: demographic of the readership we now have. That was a kind of a growing thing because you were always aware of what was going on around you. And I think because Jackie Magazine was, the editorial offices were in Dundee in Scotland, where the publisher's headquarters were, we weren't in the hub of you know, London and part of the media scene. And I have no idea what the media scene would have been like. I was part of the media scene in the 80s, late 70s and early 80s when I joined The Sun. But we weren't sort of, you know, going to PR events and stuff. We were living normal lives. We were normal girls, normal women, normal normal men, leading lives that our readers led. There was nothing fancy about or special in any way about the lives that we led. So I think that gave us a better understanding. So all the people who worked on the magazine, they had an enormous input into sort of the sort of ethos that we had and the atmosphere that we tried to create. So changing, changing attitudes would filter to us more quickly than if we'd been part of the sort of dazzling, glittery scene, as it were. You used to have a
0: series in there called Jackie Teachings. Yes. You remember those? Yes, I do. Written by a gentleman called John Spear. Right. Now, last week, uh, I spoke with his son. Oh, really? How interesting. Yeah. We had a Zoom conversation last week. And when his father died of about three years ago, had kept all his Jackie
2: cuttings. No, you know. no. He was a brilliant writer. He was terrific in what he did. It was, it was you know, we actually had a marvellous team of freelancers, you know. I mean, it was mostly freelancers. So when I, when I joined the magazine, you weren't encouraged to do anything on your own. We were mostly Employed as what the journalists would know as called a sub-editor, which meant that somebody else would write it, would come into the magazine, and you would reshape it or edit it to fit the magazine style and and actually page size, that sort of thing. And it gradually, gradually, I start, you know, I actually pretty quickly, I started writing things myself, and and it was it was all because I wanted, I loved show business, and I wanted, and of course that was the pop scene, and I wanted to interview people, and people, you know, so pop stars would come to Dundee, and I'd i I'd, I'd get to interview them, and then. I, ma- I managed to sort of do a lot of fashion things where I I'd I tra- I travel out of Dundee for a week and I'd go um, from one little town to another because it was it was the time of sort of very sort of independent um, little boutiques and things so they all had their own little designs and I, I traveled around and you know for a week and so that got me out of the office but people didn't people sat in the office and they did. You know they, they they worked with other people's words i find that very frustrating so i managed to get out and then i you know more and more i was interviewing pop stars and then then when i became editor i was more sort of grounded in a way but then I, I still kept up my my interviewing pop stars frivolously that's what i loved i loved show business i loved all of that and still yeah. do dazzled by talent dazzled by talent i'm Always just sucked in by talent. I love talent. You know, the music papers actually were were too serious for me. Oddly enough, you know, so that's why I never aimed for that. So when the job came up for the Sun, you know, and we all think, oh my God, the Sun! But you know, the Sun wasn't like that in those days. It wasn't regarded like that in those days, and it was a very professional operation. Mm-hmm. I took the big step and, and launched myself, and I, and I really, I mean, what a what a time I had! I was so lucky. I mean, I got to travel the world. I went to, to South America with, with Queen when they played their iconic stadium gigs there at Freddie Mercury's Invitation. I went to China with Jean-Michel Jarre. I, my, the first time I went to the States, I was invited by Elton John personally on his plane, a private plane that he was taking with a, a plane load of family and friends to his Dodger Stadium concert. And then he put us all up in LA for a week. I mean, how? that's when I was at I remember, I remember sitting in DC Thompson's and we had a, we didn't have phones on our desks. There was there was a phone booth, and you weren't supposed to make phone calls before twelve because they were more expensive before twelve. And there was a switchboard, and you had to have a phone call put through to you. I mean, that's hardly you know sort of a you know cab reporter out in the field you know doing anything. But yeah. um, and I and 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 I got a phone call one day from Elton John, whom I had interviewed a couple of times. This is back in the back in the early seventies, and I'd met him in nineteen sixty seven. I actually met Elton John six, nineteen sixty seven, which is what fifty three. Years ago. He was 20 and I was 21. Anyway, and um, he rang up and said, um, can you take a week off? And I said, uh, a week off what? He said, a week off work. And I said, yeah, I've got a holiday. Yes, why? And I said, would you like to come to Los Angeles for a week? So, uh, so see, you see, these things are extraordinary. How, luck, how lucky was I? What were your ambitions when
0: you were growing up? Did you, you say that you loved entertainment? Did you always want to
2: become a reporter? No, not in the least. Not in the least, I mean, I grew up in South Africa where we didn't, we didn't have television. Can you imagine that? We didn't have television. Television did not, had not, was not launched before I left there. So I didn't, I'd actually see television until 1961 when I was 15 and arrived in Scotland with my mother and my younger brother. I had loved music. I had I'd loved Elvis. I remember thinking I was in love with Elvis when I was eight years old. I remember seeing Cliff Richard He was the first pop star that I remember coming to South Africa when I was about, oh God, maybe 13 or 14. And my best friend's mum drove us down the 50 miles to Durban. And I remember seeing him. That was the first pop star I'd ever seen. Uh, and then when I landed in Scotland at age 15, it was all for me, sadly, very miserable because it was, my father had died three years before. Um, we ended up living with my grandfather. It was very cold and gray. I'd been to a very small uh, private girls' school in South Africa, and I ended up in a huge secondary modern in um, in Cooper and Fife, a very good school called Bell Baxter that my mother later taught at. But the contrast between my life, my sunny, sunny, open outdoor life in South Africa and the one in Scotland, which was cold and full of snow and grey and... Uh, Difficult, in fact. That meant that I I was merely sort of struggling to sort of survive, rather than thinking, what can I do? It was such a strange situation. But anyway, I loved television when I when I could see it, and um, there was you could you could laugh hysterically at this. There was a, a soap called Compact, which was about a, a magazine, a woman's magazine, and I remember looking at that thinking, oh, gosh, that looks. That looks like fun, and then and that and that started my brain working, and I thought, oh. Anyway, I went to St Andrews University and flunked that after a year because I didn't really do any work, which was and it was deeply depressing because I, uh, you know, one doesn't like to fail at things, and then I suddenly thought, well, I will try. To go into journalism. The thing is, there's no route into journalism. I mean, you can go, you know, and you could possibly go then, but nobody told you you can go and learn. DC Thompsons were geographically, they were across the water from where we lived. We we lived on the southern shore of the of the River Tay, a little village called Wormit, Wormet on Tea. And I could see Dundee across across the bridge. And DC Thompsons were there. And so I try, first of all I tried the Scotsman. I rang up the Scotsman in Edinburgh and they said, well, actually, you know, you sound like the right sort of person, but you know, you're closer to Dundee. Why don't you try DC Thompson's? They're absolutely brilliant, you know, and they'll teach you all you need to know. And I rang up DC Thompson's and they said, All oh, come and see us. And I went on a Friday morning and I was still there by the Friday afternoon. They kept bringing people in to talk to me. And then they said to me, well, when do you want to start? And I said, well, I, ha- I wasn't really sort of... I just wanted to find out about it. And they said, well, would you like would you like to start? And I said, um, well, I'm not doing anything, so I could start on Monday. So I did, and I was there for 12 years. But,
0: but that's the yeah. way things were back then. Yeah.
2: And I was very lucky that, that I worked for Gordon Small, He was the man who founded and edited Jackie initially, and he then became the managing editor. You, you would never imagine that a man who could understand what young girls wanted would be um, a great big bluff balding red bearded scot and RAF I think engineer he was and uh, you know if you talk about the wee lasses, aye, the wee lassies <laughs> and but he was fantastic because he understood that what readers wanted you know what the readers wanted and how to give it to them and also as I said the same sense of responsibility mm. that he had yes. uh, and that the whole company had. So I was very lucky as a, uh, to to learn from the best, and that stood me and in really good stead. Did you feel you learned a lot from him, but you perhaps didn't realise at the time? Oh, he was very gruff, you know, and we all used to laugh about him from time to time, and you know, would do do imitations of him, and Oh God and small. But you know, we always knew that he was he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Uh, although if you met him, you'd never you'd never realise that he was very gruff and, and a bit unreconstructed. I mean, he wouldn't, you know. <laughs> Put it that way, but but I I have had an enormous fondness, and when he died some years ago, I was I was very sad. Mm. He he once he sent me a lovely letter back, ooh, probably about fourteen years ago. There was going, there was going to be a Jackie reunion uh, in Dundee, and I couldn't make it. Uh, grandly, I was living in Paris for three months, and but I sent a letter to be read out, and I don't know if people would read it out, praising Gordon and saying how much he meant and what what the, his legacy was out of the blue I got an email from him saying this is a month or so later, saying thank you for all that and but also saying some wonderful things to me you know that and uh, that meant an awful lot to me because I mean I left in 1978 and this is you know this is 25 years later more than 25 years later that was that was kind of the cl- completion of a circle in a way. At that time when I was living in Paris I had to go and interview Emma Thompson, who was promoting some movie. And um, at that point, Jackie uh, was being republished in in book form. I don't know if you remember that. They did a sort of Jackie compendium, which was sort of, uh, you know, kind of the greatest hits, the best bits, as it were. And I did a forward for it. And I took her a copy of that wrapped up. And I said, I'm not going to let you see this until the end, because I won't get any sense out of you. And she... (laughs) She actually tore the paper out and, and she literally screamed. And she she I couldn't. "Oh, she kept oh look oh look oh." oh. There's a little story about Emma Thompson. In Jackie, we used to have Samantha's page, which was the reader's letter page. They'd write and tell you a little story about their dog or their, you know, some funny little thing that happened to them. I got a letter, the editor got a letter from a little girl called Emma Thompson. She was then 12, I think. And she said, you you, you print wonderful pictures of pop stars like Mick Jagger. But I think you should print a picture of my, my dad because he does the magic roundabout on television and he's called Eric Thompson. And I think he's better looking than Mick Jagger. And she sent me a little black and white picture. Well, we printed that. We printed that, we printed her letter with that. Anyway, cut to some, oh God, it must've been about eight or nine years later. I was then the television critic on the Sunday People. And I'd had to review a BBC Two programme, which was the Cambridge Footlights. It was the first time they'd done the Cambridge Footlights review because it was such a good year. I think it was Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Right. Emma Thompson. None of these people we knew. We knew none of them. I remember looking at the cast list and thinking, Emma Thompson, Emma Thompson, I wonder if that's the same girl. And I rang up the BBC press office and said, tell them a story, and they said Emma Thompson. They said, no, 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 no. no. I said, could you just check if her father's Eric Thompson? And they, and they rang back and said, oh, you're quite right. And it was. It was her. So anyway, so then she made her first series. I think it was called, I can't remember what it was called, the Lebanese something or the, I can't, anyway, it's where she met Kenneth Branagh. And I went to the press launch of that and she was there and we met. And when we met, she didn't burst into tears, but she had tears in her eyes because her father had just passed away, I think about six months before. And so the connection was with her father's photograph in Jackie. So that was, so I understand how much Jackie meant to teenagers because women now in their 60s, I would say, who were teenagers in the 70s, it didn't necessarily shape their lives, but it was at a very important stage of their lives. And therefore it still resonates all these decades later.
0: Do you feel looking back that you had a huge responsibility on your, on your shoulders?
2: I felt I had a huge responsibility at the time. Mm. I really did. I mean, I, I don't really sound pompous at all. I mean, looking back, I realise then, but, I, but I, I'm a very much um, dotting the I's and crossing the T's person. And, and with my, my mother's influence, I suppose, as a, as a school teacher and her sense of responsibility and her sense of protective attitude that she had towards her students, I think that filtered to me. And I, I, can't, I can't say it was like a a guardian angel with a flaming sword keeping, you know, harm's way from Jackie Readers. <laughs> That's the over-dramatized version. But yeah. no, I, I, I generally felt it was important that with that age group, you should take care.
0: Well, you, you were for many a surrogate mother as well as
2: being a healer in many ways as well. Mm. Well, you know, who's, who's to know? I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just glad that we did the best we could, put it that way. Mm. Because the fact that people are all these years on, we're still talking about it. Yeah, well, you know, there was the Jackie musical, uh, was it about four years, four years ago? Was it five years ago? I mean, God, I mean, time has ceased to have any existence in lockdown. I mean, I don't know what day of the week it is, what year it is, what time of day, you know, you think, my God, how am I going to fill my day? And suddenly it's six o'clock at night. Anyway. So it was about four or five years ago, and I was asked to be involved with that. Uh, I was thrilled about it because they made me a a consulting, they made me editor-in-chief, made up this grand title, which means I was consultant and and I, I, I would go to the first nights and I was very involved in you know, chatting to the cast and the dancers about what life had been like in the 70s Uh, because it was mostly young people, you know. I remember the first night going to to the theatre and thinking, well, how will it be? And at one point, looking around and seeing all these middle-aged women with the odd man dotted about who'd been dragged in uh, to accompany them, absolutely ecstatic, you know, up and dancing in the aisles, just loving it, just absolutely loving it and transported back to their youth and and that happened every single time so I probably saw it about a dozen times Mm -hmm. and never got bored of it obviously but it was that because it was so the sense of euphoria in the theater was just because they were reaching out and touching their younger selves and 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 in a not just a safe way but in a really happy deliriously youthful way, recapturing their yeah. the kind of lost innocence, if you like. like. My my connection with Elton, as I say, went back to 1967. And my one connection with him that I, the one regret of my life and my career, as we laughingly call it, is that when I was probably in the late 60s, and I'd known Elton a little bit, I was then fashion editor of Jackie. And I would come down to London for a week every month. And I would pick the clothes for the, for the four weeks fashion shoots and stuff like that. And it meant I was, you know, suddenly in the buzz of things. And I actually adored it because otherwise I was sitting in Dundee in an office. I was introduced to Elton by a fashion PR. I said, like, I've taken on this young guy um, and I'd like you to meet him. And we went to Dick James Music Studio in New Oxford Street. And there was Elton and he was 20 years old. He had hair, I can tell you at the time. (laughs) Um, Bizarrely, that day he had written a song by himself. He'd done the words as well. Called Nina, but just by chance. So he played it to me and gave me a, gave me a copy. I thought, wow. Anyway, we went round the corner to um, a little cafe in Denmark Street and have a coffee and just got on like a house on fire. And he was hilarious because he he's a brilliant mimic, a great impressionist. He, he would do things like Dame Edna, um, Dame Edith Evans, so, you know, handbag from The Importance of Being Earnest, and you know. So we wrote to each other and he sent me the copy of, of the demo. And it was Two years later, he rang me up and said, "Look, I've got my first album. When you next come down to London, will you have lunch with me? And I said, yes. And I thought, lunch, blimey, he's, you know, <laughs> going up in the world. So we met at the same CAF in Denmark. So he didn't have that much money. And we had lunch. He gave me a copy of the album, his first album, Empty Sky handwritten with joy to nina knickers and stuff like that you know silly things he'd written on it and we were kind of very bubbly and blah 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 and i was out of dundee and i was happy 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 after about 10 or 15 minutes you both have subsided and i i said what's he said what's wrong with you and i said oh well you know i'm i love my job but i really feel stuck in dundee i really would love to be in london i feel kind of trapped and i said what on earth wrong with you you've got your first album he said oh yes he said but i've <sighs> I feel, you know, this is it. I'll never do anything. I, I, I can't write anymore. You know, I, I'm writing with Bernie Taupin and he's wonderful, but I've got this complete block. I think this is just a, a flash in the pan and I'll never I'll never do anything again. I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. I said, you know, this is just a, a hiccup. There was a long pause and he said, have you ever thought of writing lyrics? And I said, oh, don't be silly. I couldn't write lyrics. He said, well, well have you tried? And I said, well, no. And he said, well, try and I said oh I couldn't he said when you promise me when you get back to Dundee will you will you promise me you'll write me some lyrics and and send them to me now Louise did I do that no no I did not that is my biggest regret I mean I might have been absolutely crap at it I mean there's no reason to suppose I could have you know rhymed moon with June but (laughs) I know I didn't find out And uh, any, but anyway, uh, a year or so later, I got, um, sitting in my desk in Dundee, I got a, one of those uh, cardboard envelopes and inside it was the demo of a single and a handwritten letter from Elton. I don't know he, whether he'd sent this to everybody he ever knew, I don't know but in this, I've no reason to suppose he did or he didn't. In this letter, it says, here's a single that I wrote that I'm really proud of. I, it's just me and the piano, it'll, it's a demo, but I hope, you'll, I hope you like it. And I wanted to tell you that, although I didn't write the lyrics, as you know, Bernie did, but when I was composing it, I was thinking of you. And it was your song. Now, I can't imagine, that might've been a marvelous marketing ploy that he wrote to everybody, I don't know, but it might not have been. I'll never know oh that's just beautiful that Mm. is beautiful so I as I say I was lucky enough to meet talented people I and I still am tell us about the story of when you uh, met Princess Diana
0: in the ladies
2: ah I had gone to the a a restaurant called the Caprice which is kind of behind the Ritz and it's a lovely lovely restaurant and I was there with um with a publisher I had a I'd had a book published, and it, and it, was, it was all a disaster. There are, it's, it's not a big restaurant, and it's got a sort of a bar um, that you can sit up at as a kind of overflow. So we were sitting up there, so I kind of had my back to the, the, real, the rest of the restaurant, as it were. Anyway, I, you know, the lunch wasn't going particularly well, and I looked around, and in the corner, I thought, oh, my God, sitting at a table not quite behind a pillar was Princess Diana. And I thought, oh, Christ, wow. And I tried not to, you know, make a fuss, and that didn't, but anyway. <laughs> I saw her get out and walk across the restaurant towards the, there's a doorway with stairs downwards to the loo. I thought, gosh, I thought, and I suppose my journalistic instinct or, or some other instinct, whatever took, and I, I thought, right, I'll go to the loo. So I went down, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I went downstairs and there were four cubicles and one was occupied. I went, that's her. So I took the next one, two over. And I was so over 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 excited that when I was pulling my tights up, I put my finger through the tats, and I sort of, oh my God, there's a hole. Anyway, so I came bursting out of the, out of the cubicle, and she, there she was, she was washing her hands and she looked great. I mean, she was wearing jeans and a, a navy blazer and a white t-shirt, you know, perfect, you know, just what you, what you, a lady who lunches wears, you know, she looked fantastic. So I was, she's washing her hands and I'm washing my hands and I said, oh my God, I said, I think I've, I've, I've laddered my tights. And she said, Oh, um, I don't have any nail varnish, but perhaps a bit of soap might. You know, if you put a bit of soap, that would stop it laddering. Great. And uh, I said, Oh, well, look, I'll, I'll try that. So, I'm washing my hands, washing my hands, washing my hands, almost as much as we wash our hands now, I'm washing my hands, washing my hands. And she she, by she was putting a lipstick on. It was a Chanel lipstick, by the way. Oh. Uh, she put a, her lipstick on. And then she said, Well, she said, What well, I'm worried about, she said, I've just eaten garlic and I've got a function afterwards. And, I, and I'm terrified that I'll breathe all over people. I said, oh, don't be silly. People won't fuss about that at all. I mean, you could sandblast your wallpaper off a wall and nobody's going to be worried about that, don't you? And I said, have you have you thought about parsley? And she said, parsley. And I said, you know, if you chew a bit of parsley. And she said, oh, does that? Apparently that that kind of helps to negate the, the garlic fumes. And I said, "Or." You could stick a sprig of parsley behind your ear. I, I was completely, you know, rabbit. You could stick a sprig of parsley behind your ear, and everybody was so busy thinking, "What's she do with the sprig of parsley behind you?" They won't notice the garlic. <laughs> <laughs> so she was roaring with laughter, and at that point we both left, turned to leave, we went up, started to go up the stairs, and I said to her, "This is a fabulous restaurant for lunch." I said, "But these stairs are so steep." I said, "You, you know, if you came down here in the evening and had a few glasses of wine, like, my God, you could plummet." So she laughed. She said, "That's a very good tip." And that's it. And we and I, you know, that's my one contact with her and I didn't know that some years later there I'd be standing outside Kensington Palace, you know, broadcasting to the nation live on television for Richard and Judy on this morning, the day after she died in a car crash. And I remember standing there and, you know, describing the scene and, you know. I'm standing in the middle of the broadcast and I think Judy was in tears in the studio and a helicopter went overhead. And I i just caught myself and I said, I said, you know, just for a moment, because hearing the helicopter and being so close to Kensington Palace, I thought to my, a split second, I thought to myself, oh, I wonder if that's Princess Diana going to a fantastic lunch. You know what I mean? I thought, remembered, And I just stood there and wept because it was just so... Well, that time we all lived through, it It was was just such a a dreadful time. You know, I wore black for a week and I didn't realise till the end of the week, I mean, I obviously wear black a lot, but I mean, I wore nothing but black. And and it wasn't a conscious decision. It was only a week later that I realised, oh my God, I've worn nothing but black. Isn't
0: that strange? No, it's it's not strange at all. You know, when Elvis died, Michael Jackson,
2: David Cassidy, it needs to be, people need to talk about it. Yeah, it needs to be marked in some way. I remember I did three live broadcasts. The first was from outside Kensington Palace. And then on Wednesday, it was from the Mall. And where people were were queuing up to sign the Book of Condolence. And at that point, the Queen had not yet lowered the the flag on top of Buckingham Palace. And the mood, you know, there were all sorts of people. I mean, there were hundreds and thousands of people in that queue. There were people who'd come from nightclubs and were queuing. There were people, businessmen on there, not going to work. Children, you know. But it was extraordinary. And then I did from Westminster Abbey, I think it was, uh, from outside and talked to all sorts of people there. And so I felt very, I was at sort of at first hand with a lot of the people who were close to her as well. So that was, that was really. And the bizarre thing was that the weekend before, the weekend that she died, I had been in Paris for a long weekend with my other half. And I knew I was going to be in this morning, on this morning, on the Monday morning. And I was supposed to be talking about the return of the stiletto shoe. And that's that's how frivolous, I, you know, Oh, you know, and I remember walking up the Elysees to, to Charles Jordan and looking in the window and seeing what and I thought. Well, thank God, because and I remember thinking, well, the clumpy old flat shoes are something that Princess Diana would never have worn. So why else should the rest of us? And in fact, we walked along the Seine and, and along to that almost to that tunnel. By chance, I'd walked that route along the same that she was driven on the on the Saturday, and then we flew out of Paris on the Saturday night, as she must have been flying in. But as you say you mentioned David Cassidy, and I, and I think one of the things we were we took a great deal of care with with Jackie magazine was to recognise what a crush was and how important it was to a young girl to have an object of fantasy and desire. It was practicing for romance, practicing for life, I think, in a way. The Jackie Readers were divided between Donny Osmond and David Cassidy. And, I, you know, I don't think war ever really broke out. But if you loved one, you didn't love the other, mostly. And they were both equally worthy of little girls affection I think
0: because David gave you your biggest seller in one one issue in 1972 I think yeah, that they, was around the time the sales went from like 600,000 a
2: week thousand to a million to that and the we, we, we instigated the, the the three-part pin-up because Jackie was huge compared to some other magazines so we'd we'd have the center page spread as a pin-up and then I had the idea of doing it over three parts over three weeks so that you'd have to buy it for 3 weeks which was the marketing bit and so you give away the middle bit and then then the, and then and then the legs and you give away the head last because you gave the head first they might not get the other two parts <laughs> and and they say so the, the sales shot up the David Cassidy cover was the one that did it i think yeah,
0: yeah. i still have some of those
2: oh good i'm glad i'm That's glad
0: amazing sometimes the colors didn't quite match
2: <laughs> i know this is the terrible thing the, the the printing process was not the most sophisticated and it was so sad because they they'd come back in the post they'd fold them up and say I can't make it fit you know and you know and and there'd be an overlap of the of the fingers you know so there'd be you know so it looked like like bunches of bananas and it was always terrible there was nothing we could do about all the colors didn't match up you know there'd be flesh tone of you know sort of almost puce and the face and then deathly pale on the hands you know like, oh no but there was nothing we could I could te- that was a technical thing and I couldn't I couldn't fix that but we didn't care no no I mean as long as you had somebody that you could yes. kiss good night on the back of the bedroom door
0: tell yeah. t- tell me uh about your encounters with him because you did meet David a few times
2: and I you did
0: found him incredibly shy
2: the first time I saw him was at a press conference in Scotland and I think he was being launched as the face of keep scotland tidy something like that it was and there was a crowd of journalists in a room probably about 40 maybe 50 a small room and he came in and he sat down and he looked up at everybody and the photographers and the journalists and he just blushed he just he just absolutely blushed you your heart went out to him and at that time it was cassidy mania you know i remember being in a car with him being driven through the center of glasgow i think it was and the police had actually turned the traffic light so that everything was green on his route so he didn't have to be stopped but, I, but something went wrong and there was a red light and the car was just completely overwhelmed with kids you know crawling all over it and banging on and tra- pulling off the the windscreen wipers and you know just and you know he, he was under siege, really, and it was, I think that was, must have been terrifying for him. I interviewed him you know, several times th- in those sort of days, but then I, I interviewed him later on, and I interviewed him probably in the late 90s and met him a few times, and there was a kind of almost like, this is your life that he did, and I was invited as a guest onto that. I found him, he's a very, very smart man and very, very talented, but I found him troubled. I always found him troubled. And in the late 90s, and I did a big interview with him, I think for The Mirror, and he told me then about his father and the uh, pressures of having a father who was alcoholic and uh, in those days they called him manic depressive. All he really wanted actually in life, I came to the conclusion, was that he wanted his father's approval and he never got it. And the terrible thing was that in in his late teens when he was really... uh, getting so famous around the world and he'd done the Partridge family and he was having all hit singles and he was getting more and more and more fame, which a normal parent would have been thrilled about. It only caused jealousy in his father. And so the more famous he got, the more he was trying to get his father's approval, the more it backfired on him. And that seemed to me very sad. And I think that coloured his life. And I think that sadly really was the undoing of him.
0: I remember you saying that you'd played him at one interview a flexi disc because Jackie yeah. was, always used to give out flexi discs of the stars of the day. Yeah. Tell us what his reaction was.
2: I was interviewing him in a little recording studio in called Wise Buddha in um, the centre of London and it was for a Radio 2 miniseries. It was two parts and it was I was a teenage heartthrob and one part was... David Castillo and Alan was Donny Osmond and I was interviewing him and it was a tiny little studio I mean we were we were like as close as you and I are I know we're we're looking at each other down a zoom lens as it were mm. but he was just there I could I could reach out and touch him it's on a little thing and a microphone each had a microphone and he was wearing a baseball cap and I said to him David I want you to listen to this because you know it's a Jackie Flexidis. this we managed to get some sound out of it just to see what memories it brings back because it, it starts out by saying you know, I'm David Cassidy and I'm sitting here in my studio with my trusty dog and I'm looking out at whatever. And the engineer played that so he could hear it. And I looked at him and his head went down so I couldn't see and his cap was, um, the brim was in the way. And then he looked up and his eyes were absolutely filled with tears. And I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to upset you. He said, no, he said, I'm, I'm listening to the voice of an innocent man.
1: Hi, this is David Cassidy, and uh, it's really a beautiful day here in Los Angeles, where I live. So I decided to take a little time out from my regular recording schedule and uh, make this a little tape for you all. I'm presently sitting here in my music room with my trusty friend and companion, Bullseye. I've been working on some really different material for this LP, and uh, I'm really, really excited about it. And uh, I'm actually really excited about letting you hear it, so when you do, why don't, you, uh, why don't you drop me a line and let me know what you think about it, okay? I really appreciate that. You know, I've been thinking a lot about my plans for winter, and uh, one of the things I'm really looking forward to doing is skiing. I really love to ski, and I'm finally getting pretty fair at it. As a matter of fact, I even managed to get in some uh, some skiing on my, my last trip to Europe and Spain. And who knows, maybe I'll even get a chance to ski on your slopes in, in Scotland, too. Which brings me to one of, the, one of the nicest thoughts about winter is uh, the thought of perhaps seeing you all again. I'm trying to arrange to come over on another tour, so let's all keep our fingers crossed and perhaps it'll happen. I know I can't think of a better way to spend my Christmas holidays because Christmas is a really warm, peaceful feeling that we all get, and uh, it's the kind of feeling that you can only get by being around people that, that you really care about, that you really love. Well, I've got to get back to work now, but before I do, I just wanted to, uh, to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a whole lot of love.
2: I think he was pretty tormented. The thing is, he knew how talented he was. He knew how brilliant he was, and yet he could, or he could never feel happy with that somehow. And the thing is, he didn't want to be his father, and he wanted his son, um, whom he adored, he wanted his son to have... He wanted to be the sort of father to his son that his father never was to him. He didn't want to make the same mistake. And I think when he succumbed to the the booze inside himself, he knew exactly what he was doing and hated it. And I think, but I think he was powerless to stop himself. And I think he beat himself up mentally about that as well. I think that was that was really sad. I mean, it, but I think it stems from his father, his own father.
0: What what you've said just now, Nina, is exactly what people who worked with him have told me. In right, that, day, that he could never get over the fact that, but all these millions of strangers around the world loved him, and he didn't yeah. understand why.
2: Yeah, it didn't compute because it, it meant to him. I think that it was almost like that he wasn't worthy of it, or it, it was false in some way because the the true emotion that he wanted was from his father Uh, and that last documentary I saw of him where he's recording you know it's terribly sad terribly sad because he was recording you know his a couple of his father's songs I think you know and it just gosh uh, it, it you know it really shows you what the you know literally the price of fame I think because it exaggerates it exacerbates whatever is inside you, whatever flaws or problems you have. Fame can exacerbate that and multiply it, and it takes a very—I don't know how you—I don't know how you get over it. I mean, if you look at look at Donny Osmond, who is a completely different character, he had very hard times. His father was an enormously uh, authoritarian figure and pushed those kids. They didn't have a childhood really, but he somehow survived, and by reinventing himself. He reinvented himself. He took all the all the insults and the sneering that they got an awful lot of sneering the Osmonds and particularly Donny and, and, and sort of somehow uh, just kind of uh, transcended that and, and was always a much sunnier soul than you know than, 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 than sadly David was. Would you consider that maybe because he had his brothers
0: around him that gave him more emotional support, more of a foundation
2: I think I think you're absolutely right, I mean I think David was very, very lonely, I think he was terribly lonely. He had nobody to talk to, had nobody to to compare his experience to mm. you know he was completely sort of isolated, yeah, completely isolated and and, and I remember his manager was a very strange woman, and the manager that I met she was she was an ex ping pong champion and she was obsessed with her dog uh her dog was called Tink, and she had all the you know her things that said think, tink and I think David, I could be wrong, but maybe this is—I've misremembered it. But David was on tour here, and Tink back in Los Angeles got ill, and I think she abandoned David and flew back to Los Angeles. You know, so that's how—that's—that's that's what I remember. I could be mistaken, but that's what I remember. Right. Yeah, no, he—I think I, I always think of David as, as lonely. I'm sorry, but
0: yeah, and very fragile,
2: very fragile, very a very thin skin very thin skin he did have happy time I last saw him performing at the Hammersmith uh it was called the Hammersmith Odeon in those days well I forget what it's called now but anyway um possibly Bo must have been about 10 or 12 or something and it was David's birthday and I'd been invited to the, to the party afterwards and I took my other half with me Grant and I and he said well what can I expect I said a lot of middle-aged women behaving very outrageously <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. They were terrifying. Um, anyway, the party upstairs, and he had a he had a lovely cake with a horse on it, I think, a racehorse on it, yeah. and blew out the candles. And I, he looked, with Sue and Beau there, he looked, the, the picture of happiness. It looked like a lovely, happy family party get-together. He played a great gig. You know, he'd had the affirmation of lots of fans who'd been fans for decades, and he was having a party. So there were, there must have been happy times or two. I don't, I don't you know because we now because we know because we know more than we knew then. We dwell on the negative aspects, but I think he had lots of fun too. Yeah,
0: and you've had a lot of fun too in your in your career. Yeah. Who are the most absolutely? Who are the most fascinating people you've met?
2: Oh my God, how lucky am I? Um, Yoko Ono is an extraordinary woman, absolutely extraordinary. I first interviewed her about eighteen years ago. She was very shy to start with and a bit reticent, but we got on like a house on fire and she's one of those people, she's very warm. She, she's she's giggly. She gossips. She reaches out and touches your knee. She's quite tactile. Um, that sort of, that first interview went into what's now, well, I wouldn't call her a friend, but we're on the Christmas card list. And I'm looking up here and I'm looking at um, something she sent me that first time I interviewed her to Nina in Sisterhood. And it's a copy of her, um, of her single she 's got big kiss love Yoko two thousand and two um, i 've got uh, I went and interviewed her in New York on camera for this morning. We were there for the weekend, Grant and I and she said and, and we 're in the middle of filming we 're resetting the cameras and stuff, and she said, "Well what are you going to be doing in new york and i said oh i 'm going to go, we 're going to the theater every night we 're trying to see everything we can I said the only thing is." We can't get tickets for the producers and the producers had just opened maybe sort of a year before. It was hilarious. Um, I remember when, when, um, when the producers opened, it was a favorite film of Grant's, my other half. And then when it opened on Broadway, he said, oh, I'd love us to go to Broadway. I said, well, you know, A, it's expensive. You know, chance would be a fine thing, you know, but anyway, suddenly here we were in New York, but we couldn't get tickets for love nor money. So she said, oh, you, you can't get tickets. Okay, well that, that's a shame. Anyway, so we finished filming and they were just clearing up, and she was still chatting and stuff. And she called to an assistant, and then came back to me and she said, Nina, what you know, what night are you free to go to the theatre? This was a Friday. I said, well, we're going to see um, Baz Luhrmann's uh, Labo Am tonight. So Saturday night, but I can't imagine. We, we said, wait, and she fixed us two tickets for the producers, and so we got this note saying, please get turn up at the theatre half an hour beforehand, and her assistant will have the tickets for you and and she did. And there was a, a big envelope with two tickets for the producers. There were the house seats and a photograph from her saying, dear Nina and Grant, enjoy the show. Well, it was not her sort of show at all. And 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 we went to the show and I, I sat there and I was saying to Grant, I said, you know, a year ago, you said, let's go to, oh, if only we could go to, um, to you know, this, this, this shows you, you know, how life can change. You'd love to go to Broadway, to New York to see the producers. I said, who would have thought that, our flights would have been paid for by ITA or you know LWT who produced this morning because I was filming for them. Yeah. And that Yoko Ono would get us the tickets. Who in the world could ever have imagined that would happen? But it did. And then so we've kept in touch. She invited us to um, the installation of her artwork, which is the Imagine Peace Tower in an island in Reykjavik, just in the harbour in Reykjavik. And it's absolutely amazing. Been there three times now. It's like a great big, circular, white, like a great big tub, if you like, with imagined peace written on it. In very and from this come 15 enormous beams of light that just shoot up to the sky, which are, you, can, you can see it from space apparently. And it's illuminated on his birthday and on the anniversary of his assassination. And between his birthday and his, and his assassination, it's illuminated. And then I think at New Year and then on Yoko's birthday. Mm-hmm. And it's extor- and the most extraordinary experience to see it taken in a little boat, dead of night, freezing, freezing cold onto this island and walking on a path with fairy lights down to this area where this thing was. And there was a ch- choir of Icelandic schoolchildren, all sorts of Icelandic dignitaries. And Ringo was there and George Harrison's widow, Olivia, all sorts of people like that. Um, Sean Lennon and his girlfriend and various ceremonies. And then the uh, it was all in darkness and the choir sang. Then Yoko made a little speech and pressed a button. Out of the darkness came a recording of John Lennon singing Imagine. And then suddenly this huge beam of light. I mean, it was like, I mean, you just stood there and wept. It was just so extraordinary. And, and it was so cold, your tears your tears practically froze on your cheeks. It was just an extraordinary So. That I've been very lucky to have been a part of with with Yoko. And um, about five years ago, I went to New York to pick up, and I'm blowing my own trumpet here, pick up an award for a a Radio 4 program I made about a singer, a songwriter called Rufus Wainwright and his family called Meet the Wainwrights. And it won an international award, New York uh, International Radio Programme Festival um so we went to new york to pick it up and i wanted to sort of do a travel piece about new york because i thought i've got to pay for this somehow the tickets for the for the for the dinner were like 500 dollars each or something you know so i said to the travel editor of the mail on sunday oh would you like a travel piece on new york about you know the, the, the cultural side of new york because i discovered there was a frida carlo exhibition in the botanic gardens an exhibition of the klimt gold lady uh Painting and Helen Mirren had just made that movie about that very painting, Mm. and Yoko Ono had an art exhibition at MoMA. They said, "Yes, yes, write it." So that was all fine, and I let Yoko's PR know that we were coming to New York, and I was going to go to MoMA. The next thing I know, I get uh, an email saying. Uh, Yoko would like to show you around the exhibition herself please would you you know wait for instructions we arrived in New York on the Friday night and on Saturday morning I got a call saying can you be ready it's a bit early tomorrow morning but we hoping Yoko's hoping that your jet lag will work for you can you be at the side door of MoMA at five o'clock tomorrow morning (laughs) and she said because Yoko is doing an installation an international installation. It is, it was going to be recreated in eight museums around the world. And she was the first, but she said, she wants to show you the, the, the sorry, I'm being really rambling. She wants to show you the exhibition before that. So we, we turned up in a thunderstorm and to find like 500 people queuing outside the doors. They'd, they'd all bought tickets, It was sold out. And then suddenly this big, li- this limo turns up and here's Yoko with her, with her little hat on. She's tiny, you know, throwing her arms around us, taking, in, ushering us inside and up to the sixth floor and walking around the exhibition and saying, you know, when I was living in this apartment then and before I met John and this is what blah, blah, blah. And, he, and she was showing us all this stuff. It was amazing. And then eventually they said, you know, Yoko, we have to go downstairs. She said, oh no, I want to show them some more. She said, y- y- Yoko, the dawn waits for no one. This is a dawn installation. You've got to be down here. So down we all tripped. And there, and there was a, you know, a gallery filled with these 500 people, young people who would pay to see her and there was a stage and there was a DJ, so there was a mu- music going. And she came forward and she made this wonderful speech, um, threw away her notes. They'd made a little written little thing for her and she threw that away and just spoke from the heart, which was great. And then, you know, they all applauded her wildly and the DJ brought the music up and it was something just to dance. And she started dancing and the, and the, and the crowd started dancing. So she was dancing there with and, and the crowd and we were standing at the side with all the sort of the entourage and things. And suddenly she of like that, come over. And it was me and Grant, come and dance with me. There were me and Grant, my other half, on stage at 5.30 in the morning at MoMA, God's sake, dancing with Yoko Ono. Can you, can you believe that? I, I, I can still not believe it. It's then we went upstairs and had a sort of, they've got us croissants on breakfast, and she had some she had wonderful things in the gift shop. One was a, a, a coffee cup, which is called Unbroken Cup, which is, oh, I've got it here, hang on. I don't know if you can see that there unbroken cup and it's it's to it's to symbolize an unbroken cup when so many cups were broken like in Hiroshima so it's to symbolize a that's this isn't that there can be unbroken cups yes so oh wow oh so she gave us she gave us each one of those which was really kind of her and that's so as I say I've always loved talent and interesting people and golly have I got to meet them so that was Yoko Freddie Mercury another just a one-off I mean, he once said that David had had been one of his inspirations. Really, and I I, I I can understand that because Dave, David was a fabulous mover. He was. He was. I've have stood I've stood i oh. stood, stood, stood in the wings and watched those little bums twitching. Have you really? Oh dear. You know, t- you know, yeah, no, exactly. That, those white jumpsuits. Those white yeah. um, oh, just to die for. Freddie was fantastic. I went to interview him. He he was actually he uh, he's another one who was incredibly shy. And he had this really foreboding look. I mean, he gave you give you a real coffin look. You know, he didn't know who you were. you got this terrible, you know, the stare, you know. Anyway, so I went to interview him at his manager's office and we were in this room together. We absolutely adored each other. I mean, Very quickly, I say that, you know, I mean, I adored him and we, we got on really well. And after about an hour, the manager's secretary came um, uh, you know, in. I, do you need anything? In other words, that was a kind of sign to, you know, wrap it up. Mm. and um freddie just looked at him and said and i can't say it's oh, Evoff, darling and bring us a bottle of wine and, <laughs> and so she brought a bottle of wine and we said we drank it i can't remember if we drank a second one or not but anyway he said you've got to come to south america and i said south america he said yes we're, we're playing there you know in about three months time you've got to come you've got to come and so I went, and it was extraordinary. It was the most extraordinary experience. It was just the whole of Buenos Aires, where I was, um, was just turned over to Queen. When we, when we landed at the airport, Buenos Aires airport, they, don't, they weren't making any, any announcements. They were just playing Queen music through the, through, the, through, the sound, through the loudspeakers. So people were missing planes left, right and centre because there were no announcements. Please. And wherever we were, wherever we went, we were surrounded, we were, you know, by sort of not just police motorbikes, we had an armed tank next to us, you know, armored trucks and things, you know, guarding the precious, you know, queen. And uh, the actual gig itself was extraordinary. I mean, you can see it in documentaries these days. You know, it was on the, the football grounds of, uh, in Buenos Aires, and they'd never had anything on their hello turf before. So it all had to be covered. And It was a massive stadium. And they had an Argentinian flag one side, and this was before the Falklands, and a, a Union Jack the other. And it was the most extraordinary gig. And, It was it was just so euphoric. And uh, there were about a dozen journalists around the world and he wouldn't talk to anybody, any of the others, unless they talked through me. He insisted that I sat in, which, of course, they were furious. I, I couldn't do anything about it. He just he didn't want anybody else to talk to him. And then the last night we were there, he, he treated us all to dinner at the best steak restaurant in Buenos Aires. And it was, it was quite near the sort of domestic airport. It had a glass roof, so the planes taking over. But anyway, I thought, look, I really, I, I felt terrible about the constrictions placed on the other journalists. I mean, it's just really awful. So everybody piled in there. They're all trying to get close to him. And I just held back right to the end. I sort of held back. I thought, well, I've, you know, I've had my turn. I've had my chance. I really have. He was looking like he was sitting with his back against the wall, a great big long table. And he looked, he looked, and he was looking, looking, and he saw me went pff, pff, opposite him. I had to sit opposite him. Really? So, yeah, so I, I was very lucky. Went to his 40th birthday party, which was hats. Everybody had to wear a silly hat um, in the grounds of his house in Kensington. Oh, it was wonderful.
0: Now, also, when, when he passed, how important is it for us to have these idols in our lives? And how important is it that we grieve? The, the way we do, when the big icons pass, why is the grief so intense for so many?
2: The grief is so intense because for most of us, many of us, these people are an integral part of our lives. They mean as much to us, or sometimes more, than people we know, in, you know in, in passing, certainly. And it's because also they, when we appreciate their talent, or love their songs, their music, or the wor- or the lyrics that they write, or love their performances. That is a very personal thing to us. They've touched us in a really deep way. It's a it's a human emotional connection. It's a very very deep emotional connection. I think in terms of teenage heartthrobs like like David Cassidy and Donny Osmond, it because it's. It's more intense then because it's a first love. It's a first love, it's a first experience of something possibly of, of that kind of love. And it's all new and fresh and therefore it means more to us. And when we're, and if we still love that person decades later, that, that, that proves it. But if, even if we've discovered somebody like George Michael in our twenties, that's, that's been our hero, he's been our hero. It's the same thing, it's that emotional connection. If there's a lyric that captures you, it touches your heart, a lyric that means oh they understand that's the same as me it's that oh they they can see me they can under they see me too it's that it's the emotion and very often it's their vulnerability i think that that connects us rather than anything else
0: we're making that transition from a girl into a woman it matters because
2: the inner child in us matters the inner child matters enormously and that's it's such a it's such a tricky time and I, I think we brush we brush over it too much in this day I, I think for a teenage girl it must be really harder because you're supposed to be more sophisticated and knowing more quickly these days there, there isn't the recognition that there is a transition between between girlhood and womanhood and there is you, you there has to be you, you you can't suddenly go from Barbie dolls to bondage you know in a you know in a split second and it's a very, unsu- it's very unsure time. We're all looking for someone to make a connection with. And before we make a real connection in life, you know, I mean, a connection other than a family connection, put it that way, yeah. uh, or, or a friendship, before we make a real connection, then a teenage heartthrob is that's who it is. That's, that's the object of affection. That's who you make your connection with. And even into adult life, they mean, can sometimes mean more to you than than a real person.
0: Oh, I know some people who have been deeply moved by the deaths of the likes of John Lennon, George Michael. It has impacted their lives to such an extent that they can't see beyond that grief. They can't move on from it because it takes them back to a happier time.
2: I I think there has to be a balance in life. There has to be a balance. And, you know, there has to be a balance between between reality and the a projected fantasy, which I think the thing is that when you get entranced with a performer, your sense of reality can sometimes be suspended because you can project your dreams onto that person. Like the, your dreams are quite safe with that person because then you're never going to find out, are you, that, that your dreams actually have no foundation or not, not, or not grounded mm. in something. Okay. And so you can keep on dreaming. Mm. And I, but I think at some point you have, to, you have to just face up to facts in a way. See it for what it is. Love it for what it is. Enjoy it. Adore it for what it is. It's safe, oh, isn't it? It is. It's safe because unt- you're never going to test it. You're never going to. You'll always have that. Nobody, nobody can take that away from you. However much of a fantasy it is, and perhaps, you know, more of a fantasy than not, you will always have that. It doesn't belong to anybody else. It is yours.
0: But then by the same token, these musicians and actors or sportsmen and women, they can become an inspiration as well for you to be like them. They give you inspiration, the incentive. Well, if they can do it, and if they can come through difficult
2: times, yes, I think that's that's very important. But but choose your heroes wisely. And sometimes sometimes you don't get the choice. Sometimes you just fall. You just yes. fall for whoever it is.
0: Yes. <laughs> Who was your idol?
2: Well, do you know? I loved Elvis when I was when I was very young. I then I think I like. Lo- uh, but. Really, it was Paul McCartney. No, really? Yeah, and everybody used to say, oh, you know, John Lennon was the cool one, you know? And I, I never thought I'd sit in the Dakota building at John Lennon's kitchen table one day, which I did uh, visiting Yoko. And, um, but Paul was always the one for me. Yeah. I loved, I, 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 I remember my friend Sue adored George Harrison and what she liked, she liked his, t- she loved his teeth. I don't know why, she loved his teeth. I love Paul McCartney's droopy eyes and the way that he lifted his chin when he was stretching for the high notes and we'd sit there in a the cinema watching Help or Hard Days Now or something and she'd say oh look at his teeth and I go oh look at his chin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> have you ever met him?
2: Oh yes I have I have I met him and and uh, interviewed him and and Linda and I I thought I was going to hate Linda because, I mean, she was the one who took, she was the one who took Paul away from me. I mean, I didn't mind Jane Asher because Jane Asher was a fiancé and, you know, English and all of that. And then suddenly there's come this woman who, you know, looked like one of the raggle-taggle gypsies and didn't shave her legs and stuff like that. You know, it was just, and I thought, oh my God. And then when I met them, I absolutely adored Linda. She was fabulous. I really loved her. And I wrote this piece about, it was, I think it was The Sun called it, Mr. and Mrs. Wings or something. Uh-huh. And I wrote about this very thing, about how I had not wanted to like her and, you know, her not shaving her legs and stuff like that. And um, I got a phone call from from Paul saying, you got her. You, never mind the shaved legs, but he said, he said you got our Linda. And he, they, they invited me. The, the Wings tour was starting in Liverpool the first night, and there was a big family party afterwards, and I was invited to that. Oh, wow. But I've bumped into him a couple of times since. I mean, there's the last time, It's some time ago, and I was sitting outside a restaurant, um, not a very fancy restaurant at all, but sitting there in the sunshine with my other half, and Paul and Beatrice walked past, and she was, must have been about eight, I think, and uh, he stopped and he said, oh, Nina, how are you? And I said, oh, more to the point, how are you? So we had a bit of a chat, but I bumped into him at the BBC, I have bumped him in, uh, in a Virgin upper class lounge. He had a whole section sort of cordoned off when I was walking past. And I think he went, oh, come in. So I've seen him a few times. I still adore him. I still adore him. But I mean, I got way beyond the crush stage. That was, yes. that was gone a long time ago. But sure. as soon as I met Linda, I thought, ah, oh, OK, fine. He's fine.
0: She got your stamp of approval.
2: <laughs> yes, she did. And he's not yearning for me secretly. <laughs> your final thoughts, Nina, on David? I think people really cared about him and worried about him and um, genuinely maybe felt regretful they could do nothing for him or made so many young girls happy, but also uh, inspired them and, and, and made, you know, a lot of young men, um, as I say, inspired them too. It's been a real pleasure talking to you this morning. Yeah. Well, thank you so much.
3: You're listening to The David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton.
0: During our fascinating conversation there, Nina and I spoke briefly, as you would have heard, about John Spear. He wrote weekly articles for Jackie from the 1960s through to the 1980s. He was responsible for a series of teach-in articles under headings such as How to Hang On to a Dishy Boyfriend, Learning How to Drive, Sticking to a Diet, How to Face the Year That Lies Ahead. John died a few years ago, but I recently caught up with his son, Ollie, who shares his remarkable life story and talks with passion about the creative legacy his father left behind.
3: My dad was uh, an ex-Marine, so um, he, he kind of kept it quiet that he was able to put himself into the mindset of um, a teenage girl to write these wow. columns which was which was to earn us enough money to because he had five children I'm the youngest of, of five and um, so Jackie was really what kept us kept us alive for all those years. The, the, I mean the way Jackie was done was that um, the, the writers weren't like credited uh, alongside the articles or anything so I don't know if they yeah. would get uh, a credit at the at the back or whatnot but even in this uh, best of Jackie that I have here, there's no mention of who wrote what. I can just tell what my dad wrote mostly by um, by his style. I, I mean, he was really, at the time, more of a comedic writer. He had written some short stories that were more uh, serious. Um, but the, the stuff that really seemed to make, uh, that he seemed to... To pursue as it made uh, more of a living for him was was the comedy stuff and that comedy comes through in his his Jackie articles, um, the, the ones that he kept at least I think he was more uh, proud of. I vaguely remember I think when I was two or maybe I remember a photograph in the um, photo album but there was a photograph of Cracker Jack on um, TV which had my dad's name in the titles he wrote a few sketches for Cracker Jack as well and that was one of the first things that I was aware of him him doing and feeling like he was famous, because it was his name on the TV. But Cracker Jack sketches only got broadcast a couple of times. And one of the times they were supposed to be broadcast, it was the uh, miners' strike and uh, the TV wasn't... Yeah, TV was down and it never got shown. So those those were the, were the days. I know that Jackie was a reliable source of income for him, because it was every week from the 60s up until the 80s. And uh, though he got other work, uh, when I was very young, he was away uh, writing for German television, which was uh, a far more high profile um, thing, which even included animation. He he went to uh, certain sites around um, Berlin, I believe, and he talked to uh, producers for this German uh, television piece. And he said, could we make this statue come to life and stuff? and they brought in animators to animate this statue. But that that was something that we never saw because it was for German TV. But, so he was doing a lot of stuff, but he was really just hustling to to get by because, you know, with uh, five uh, children. I, I'm not sure how his first short stories led to Jackie, but he did start uh, working for Thompson's of Dundee. I, so he was also doing other things like the Russ Abbott comic strip. Um, <laughs> and the little enlarged large comic strip. Things like that that were, you know, fairly uh, low profile and would have just given us... We were really struggling when I was, I, I was young. Uh, we bought a large uh, house in the alternative Hastings that was very dilapidated and needed a lot of uh, doing up, but it needed to be uh, fairly spacious because we had uh, the kids from, from, from his previous marriages i just remember it being freezing cold in 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 the winter and uh, we no central heating and um, but you know it was a it was a wonderful place to to grow up in so he's working for thompson's of dundee uh just taking what he could and i think jackie was the the thing that became a reliable weekly thing that he could he could depend on so that so that there'd always be um an income yes yeah but my dad's uh, columns i mean he did do the teachings i'm not sure as far as I know, I don't think anyone else did the teachings because uh, the majority of the Jackie articles which he kept with the, with the teachings, they were always slightly um, ir- uh, irreverent and done with a sense of humor. Um, there's the, the article in this uh, compilation is uh, Cults. He invents a lot of cults. He starts off saying um, uh, maybe you could uh, join a cult to make your life more interesting and then he, he even talks about flat earthers and this was like in the 70s when it wasn't really talked about and he goes on to say um, well why not start your own cult you know don't join a cult invent a cult and um, and it, it was it was very tongue-in-cheek and very funny there's another article where he he says uh, why not uh, become a witch you know <laughs> also and in a way i kind of think that a lot of these young girls who were reading this uh, went on to to form the british punk uh movement which, which was very female orientated oh. uh and um and they would have been empowered by this there was none of it was uh my dad's writing wasn't uh, in any way kind of telling you that you couldn't do anything i mean he was he was always just kind of uh, they seem to suggest that anything's possible you know and um even yeah. though they're done with a sense of humor and they're, they're very tongue in cheek i think um i think uh, uh that they they would have um empowered uh, young girls and that was that was pretty much the punk generation. So those bands that I love, like the Slits and um, Susie and the Banshees and whatnot, they they would have been reading Jackie because there wasn't anything else to read. But really, I can't uh, thank Jackie enough for giving my dad a job because yeah. because it got us through those those years. But in the end, he um, kind of gave up the writing to open up a print shop and then became a picture framer because uh, he wasn't getting enough income from the writing, but he was turning out these articles every week, and they were consistently funny and and I think when he's there's a disconnect between um this kind of energy that he's trying to create for to connect with the mindset of a teenage girl, which is amazing really that he was communicating directly to a whole generation and when he was in the nursing home i'd I'd say to some of the nurses that he wrote for Jackie and he'd go, "Oh don't that's embarrassing and and i was like you were speaking to a whole generation that's something to be proud of um mm-hmm. yeah it it shows that he was a far more complex very loving he didn't really hug much i was a different generation but he you could tell he was he really cared for us for, through the gestures that he made um the, this fun side of him because his articles were very fun and very funny and yeah. um he was 44 when I was born. So um, sometimes, you know, it's harder for people to identify with uh, children and maybe harder for children to identify with uh, people of that age as well. So um, he was always into culture and stuff. He was really into French culture and um and it's funny reading some of these Jackie magazines because he never expressed an interest in, in music. My mum used to sometimes, you know, play some Joni Mitchell and stuff and, um, and kind of undermine it in a way, which is funny because I read some of his articles and he, he talks about Scott Walker and, and these artists that I really like now. As far as I was aware, he hadn't, I didn't even know that he, he knew they existed. So uh, he, he was quite culturally aware of stuff that teenage girls were into, but he just didn't share that with us. Uh, but there were always a lot of uh, women in the family and, yeah, the fact that my dad was able to tap into a, a, a female mindset but um, was less open about it publicly is is an interesting thing. I remember my, my mom saying that she read a story he had written from a female perspective and she just said, how, how did you know this stuff? But I think there might have been more to him than he let on. Uh, my grandparents, uh, who his parents were, um, were very conservative kind of Daily Mail uh, readers, uh, easily shocked and horrified by um, anything rebellious or unorthodox. And my dad rebelled against that. But this was the '50s, and um, he he became uh, hugely influenced by Jack Kerouac and the Beats, the Beat Generation. And one of the first short stories he had published was. Um, a fiction and it was about a a young man whose grandmother only wants to see him married so um uh, and she's dying so um he hires a prostitute and dresses her up nicely and introduces her as his fiance to his grandmother who dies happily and and that's the story uh my grandparents his parents uh read this story and they came at him saying how can you write this you bring shame on the family Instead of congratulating him for, f- for having a short story published, they were furious and came down on him like a ton of bricks. And and this was something he said to me. He'd, he'd retell this story from, from when I was quite young. And he'd always say to me, there is nothing you can write that would shock me because he would say, uh, my parents have been so uh, disapproving of my creativity. It was only fiction. And um, I don't want to be like that. To you, So he was kind of giving me free rein to, to when I started writing. I was like, okay, nothing, uh, I can't shock you, can I? So I, I would take it as a challenge almost. And um, to give him credit, he, because uh, I didn't want him to write, read some of the stuff that I'd written, but he did. And he was like, very well written. And, um and I, you know, it's, it's a story. And he took it with a pinch of salt, no matter how horrific it was. Yeah, he, I was the person he used to ask for when he was in, in hospital, uh, in the nursing home. I think he felt that I was kind of carrying the, the torch of creativity, which, had, um, which had started really. The, his dad was um, uh, had been injured in the war. He was on an aircraft carrier that had been bombed, and he was very scarred by his experiences, but he never talked about them. And my dad said he'd hear him crying out in the night and but he he repressed it all he pushed it down and and to be honest my dad also pushed a lot of this stuff down he wasn't the type to open up and um and talk about things and um there were i asked for stories from um from my br- brothers and sisters for for his uh funeral um speech what do you call that i forget eulogy yeah yes. um because I didn't want it, because no one else wanted to speak. So I did, I conducted his, uh, his eulogy and uh, his funeral. And the stories I got from my eldest sister, um, Eve, uh, was that when she was very young, they had hardly any money at all. They were very poor. Uh, But there was a little woods at the bottom of uh, the garden and they'd walk through the woods. One day there was a a frog with a missing leg, which they um, commented on. And, And the next day as they walked through the woods, there was a little door in a tree and, and Eve noticed it. And my dad said, oh, maybe you should open the door. And she opened the door and behind the door was a doll with a missing leg. And my dad said, oh, that frog has turned itself into a doll um, and that, that's for you. And she took it home and she just said it was magical. But what my dad had done is he'd put her to bed, gotten up early the next morning, bought a, a cheap little 10p doll or whatever, pulled one of its legs off, made a little door in a tree so that she would feel that, you know, that, that there was some something magical, this connection of this frog with the missing leg turning into a doll. And that was just my my dad, you know, he had, they had no money, but he would find ways to make things magical for the, for the children. When I was young, I used to sleep in a hammock, and I connected with my dad over pirates, because I, I used to like to dress up and be flamboyant, but I was worried that um, he did, I didn't want him to see things as being too, Effeminate, so pirates were a good kind of middle ground between me getting to, to dress up and him not worrying too much about me. <laughs> if you pick up any Jackie magazine and there's some silly funny columns, that 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 would be my dad. I didn't realise the extent of it until uh we were clearing uh his flat out that that there were folders full of full of things. And there were some um notes from, from readers. I know um on one occasion he wrote under a pseudonym. Roy Lennox.
0: Did you follow in his creative footsteps? Because I know you, you're very involved with music, but was his inspiration to you to be creative in, in, a, in a field of either writing or with music as you are?
3: Absolutely writing. I mean, um, the type of uh, music I do is very uh, lyric based. And I also had a book published um, in 2003, when I was 24. Five, which was written after I um, had experiences uh, where I almost died of AIDS which uh, which is another, another story which uh, I think part of it was that there wasn't really a discussion. Uh, my parents were divorcing when um, when I came out as being gay so my mum didn't tell my dad and and I didn't have the house to come back to and I kind of spiralled uh down and as soon as I hit rock bottom um and and almost died then um my parents it opened up a dialogue where I was able to talk to my parents about these things and and that helped the healing process um but also that experience meant that I was I felt entitled to follow my heart uh at the time I was studying fine art at university and um and I realised that my heart wasn't really in the visual art as much, so I was able to take that and um, and take the um, artistic approach to uh, prose writing and later to music because um, because those were areas where I hadn't been formally educated, except for my dad was was an education. So, um, but in a way, I think uh, to to take a less of an academic approach was for me. Um, Something I, I felt more in, inspired by when I was very young. Um, my dad indulged the things that I was fascinated by. I, he was he was worried when I was a child because I didn't play like other boys. When I was very young, I, he bought me soldiers, and I didn't get them to kill each other. I'd line them up next to my bed and kiss them goodnight, and this really worried. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> um, s- and then, then, you know, um, when The Muppet Show came on television, I was transfixed, and um, so my dad got me a glove puppet, and didn't re- I didn't really have friends at school, I wasn't able to play like the, the boys played, but as soon as I had a, a puppet to talk through, um, the puppet became very popular, and uh, so I was communicating with the whole of the school through the medium of, of a glove puppet which which uh, I, I thank my dad for because he saw that I was into The Muppet Show so he he bought me this puppet so then all of a sudden I became famous as the within the school as the, the one with the, the puppet and, and then when um the tv show Fraggle Rock came along um, which which was full of music as was The Muppet Show um, but this was something that really hit me at the right age and and I had the, the record, and I started learning the songs. And, um, and I remember my dad said, oh, uh, recite the lyrics to me and I'll type them up. And he, he would type the, the lyrics up and, um, and we'd cut out a picture of a fraggle and, and put, put the words up on, on my wall. So I started to understand words and music uh, with his uh, assistance. But he didn't really listen to much music. He had one Bob Dylan record, which was before he went electric. And uh, my dad, he used to say, um, oh, I used to like that Bob Dylan before he went to electric. Couldn't listen to his music after that. And it was almost like he thought that, that there wasn't any point in listening to any music because right. it had all been said. But at the same time, he was able to talk about music in Jackie, uh, which really surprised me because he'd never talk about current music to us. It was I, I just thought he had no understanding of it. So, So somehow it was getting in, but he, in his mindset, it was like, it wasn't as good as Bob Dylan before he went electric. <laughs> or, or And even that he didn't listen to very much. It was only when he uh, retired that I started buying him stuff like Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and, and Duke Ellington. And he, he suddenly had a record collection and had music on. And my mum, who had divorced him by this point, said, He's listening to music now. He never used to. We never used to have music in the house. Why is he listening to it now? <laughs>
0: well, he, he sounds an, an incredibly creative and and giving man. You learn an awful lot more about your parents when they've when they've passed. Mm. Was what's the most telling thing you discovered about your father since his his death a, a few years ago?
3: The extent to which he was able to uh, identify with a teenage uh, with teenage. Girls, it's it was quite a revelation. I know he was embarrassed by it, but by, to me, was just it's just wonderful. It just shows what a brilliant mind he had. So, um, so the extent to which he was able to put himself in the shoes of, 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 of a t- teenage girl, um, in his forties and fifties, it was pretty astonishing. Um, I have so much respect for that. I don't think it's anything to be embarrassed by. He oh. did a lot of the picture stories as well, but I think he was less. He was less inclined to keep the the kind of romance stuff because he wasn't as as witty. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> but he wrote a lot of those as well. the the The, the picture stories, a short story he wrote about a, a boy and his uh, father going out on a, a boat, and the boy sees a mermaid, and the um the father sends him to bed and hushes the whole thing up, and you realise later that a, a woman had drowned, and you know, so so these kind of stories with a twist. I think he also wrote a few. Three of a Kind? I think he wrote a bit for Three of a... Was oh. it Three of a Kind? Miriam Margolis. I remember whenever she came on TV, my dad said, oh, she's read some of my words. I read a, I read a play or something. He did do radio plays. Yeah, radio plays as well. Radio play. And he was always, whenever someone... I'm sure Nina um, uh, as well, whenever she came up on TV, would have been my dad would have said, oh, I used to work for her. Or, yeah. uh, it was. It would happen quite a lot that, that there'd be someone who... My dad had written a script for or, or whatnot that would they would crop up he's still a, he's still a voice in my head you know that 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 helps me yeah if I to remember about the time though that he stopped uh writing I think he starts to become a bit disillusioned he was getting the odd job for BBC but I one of the things he said was that he because we were based in Hastings he never got to go into the BBC canteen and um and really network with the um, with the other writers or with the producers. So often his ideas would get um, other other people who had more of a personal connection to the to the people in power would 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 get president over his ideas. He <laughs> slightly embarrassing because I didn't think Last of the Summer Wine was that good, but maybe it's just my memory. But he said he sent in a script about these uh, this comedy idea about these old people living in a country town, and it got rejected. And then Last of the Summer Wine came about and he was like they've stole my idea (laughs) got another writer to write it so um someone did do some research recently they found one of his uh crackerjack sketches on on youtube and but it's it's a bit hard i've done some googling and not much comes up about my dad because you know it wasn't being documented in that way one of my memories of him getting or offered a job as when I was young was that he almost got to be editor of the Disney magazine. I think the idea of moving when I was that young was was a bit kind of frightening. And in the end, he didn't get the the job, which I think was a, something that came through Thompson's of Dundee, uh, but then kind of around that time, he, he gave up on the writing. And um, he was working in a bookshop when I was little, uh, running a bookshop, buying secondhand books, first editions. And from that, he got into uh, a print shop, which uh, sold prints, um, antique prints and such. And then um, he learned the trade of uh, picture framing. So um, around the time I was 10 or, or so, maybe a bit younger. Um, and my eldest brother and sister had moved out. Uh, lower part of our house got turned into a picture framing shop. Yeah. And my dad was just a, a picture framer then. Occasionally he'd, he'd take on something like a local pantomime. They'd want a script and and he'd write a script for, for the local pantomime. Or opera on the pier. There was a Hastings... Um, this opera company came to stage a, an opera on on Hastings Pier and I think it was the sequel my dad <laughs> wrote the script for which wasn't as successful as the first one and it was just a local thing that the schools got involved in but um yeah he was still writing he was uh, and working really hard <laughs> as a picture yeah. framer and you know underselling himself uh, people would travel down from London because his because uh, he was the best value and good quality as well and my mum was going you're not you're not a good salesperson you should be charging more but um up until he could you know he got Parkinson's in the end and um Mm. which he found very difficult that losing control over your body because he wanted to be a serious writer he wanted to I think he'd have liked to have been a novelist or something but you know this is this is this is what he he got and he touched so many people's lives and inspired so many people and um it's not really to be underestimated the uh, the influence that he had really and it may not have been exactly the path he'd have wanted he i think he probably didn't see himself as a successful writer in any respects and that uh jackie was just kind of his bread and butter but but in the end he was a successor in many ways <laughs> as a as a dad as well and a granddad
0: i hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the david cassidy Connections. I'm Louise Poynton, and I'd like to thank Nina Miskoff and Ollie Speer for sharing their fascinating stories. This podcast is available on all major listening podcasting platforms.